Welcome, listeners, to the BHL podcast series. I'm your host, Scott Heidner, and I'm excited to have with me today my guest, Audrey Coleman. Audrey is the director of the Dole Institute in Lawrence, Kansas. I'm a Lawrence, Kansas resident as well, one of our greatest treasures and maybe a hidden treasure to some people if you're not from here, which is something we hope to remedy today. Audrey, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Absolutely. Thanks for, to BHL for, for hosting me. Our pleasure. You know, we love to tell stories like yours of organizations that tell a cool piece of history and do some important educating along the way with those tools as well. So this is in our wheelhouse for sure. Well, the Dole Institute, again, for people particularly that don't live in Lawrence and may not know as much about it, take us back to the beginning. It's been around about 20 years, I know, but you can give us the the hard details, when it was founded, and the the conditions it had to coalesce to bring that idea together and bring it to reality. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start where we're going to end up, is that this summer, in July 2023, we're going to be celebrating our the 20th anniversary of the dedication of the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics here at the University of Kansas. And the Institute, when it's very it's very important that we say 20 years since the dedication, because the Dole Institute was in development for years beforehand. Chancellor, then Chancellor Robert Hemingway had the idea in the early to mid-90s that KU would be a great home for Senator Bob Dole's papers. And of course, he was still in the Senate then and had been for almost 35 years by that point. So it was a wonderful tribute to him and in advance of his presidential campaign or, or as that was getting underway. It made sense for, for the University of Kansas to approach the senator as the home for his, his personal papers collection, perhaps, for a presidential library that, that, might, that might come into play at some point. So I didn't know if you were going to bring it up, and I probably wouldn't have if you hadn't. But, you know, it already, in my opinion, shows a tremendous amount of foresight that Chancellor Hemingway reached out to Senator Dole to have his papers as a senator. But as you touched on, it... It could have been an even more enormous coup if Senator <laughs> Dole had become president as a front runner to a presidential library. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and and we'll get into this, but though he was not elected president of the United States, Senator Dole has a had and has a, a tremendous leadership legacy. We're so fortunate here in Kansas to call him one of our own, and you know, from someone as someone who is from the congressional archives world, we know that the leaders that we document have power for four, eight plus years, decades. Whereas if you're an American president, you only get four or eight. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Senator Dole was a legislative leader, you know, for the latter half of the 20th century and beyond. And so, you know, I don't think we're being too proud when we say that we are a really special place at the Dole Institute to be a tribute to his leadership legacy and really telling the story of, of someone who did leadership in a, in a different way than we're used to seeing today. Yeah, boy, that is so true. Yeah. So Chancellor Hemingway had the the vision and started a conversation with Senator Dole. And when Senator Dole accepted that request, structurally, tell me how it came together. I mean, the the community engagement, the fundraising, you know, locating the site, I mean, those are tremendous moving pieces for an organization and a, and a structure this size. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously, the University of Kansas was the front-running institution behind that. But with 
extensive support from the Kansas State Legislature, from the governor at the time, the Board of Regents, the KU Endowment, so many folks who were so invested in this vision of making sure that this was going to happen. In the end, it was funded by a combination of, of federal, state, and private dollars. I've seen figures you know, for the building itself being around 10 or $11 million for the building in the archive to get established, and that includes the museum as well. Just out of curiosity, if I was better at history, I wouldn't have to ask, was that Bill Graves? You it was said Governor, Governor Bill was, Graves yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the time that the groundbreaking yeah. took place, yeah, in 2001, I believe. Very and cool. then, of course, there was a cohort of leaders at the University of Kansas. There was most of you, are many folks are familiar with the late political science professor Burdett Loomis. Bill Crow with the libraries. I'm going to forget someone. Ed Mayan, Steve Skinnell, Warren Corman. Lots of folks on the on the KU side were deeply, deeply invested in the development of the institute, and it's a real special place for that reason. Even even alone. That's pretty cool, and yeah. it's funny how life intersects. I won't bore our listeners with this, but Warren Corman is somebody that we represent a lot of design professionals, and so that's a name that oh yeah you know, has been around for ages. And Burdett Loomis, I'm a KU political science grad, so is my business partner, and I mean, it's a, just another name that's yeah iconic around our, our shop, so it's a small world. Right, yeah. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. We talked about the foundation and the, you know, the partnerships and the effort that went into that, but let's fast forward. It's a done deal. You've had the groundbreaking or, or about to. What was the the mission and the vision for the Dole Institute at that time. And I want to talk about that and capture that because I know today you're doing a lot of those same things, but it's become so much more. So give us the snapshot of what the mission and vision looked like at that time, in the beginning. The creation of the Institute was was something, as we've already talked about, a completely visionary project, you know, spurred on by Chancellor Hemingway and and the folks at at KU who were dedicated to, to developing it. They recruited Richard Norton Smith, who's a presidential historian, you know, widely renowned at that point, had already been the director of the Hoover Library, also had ties with the, with the actually had was the director of the Ford Library in Michigan, connection with the Reagans, and, and was a former adult speechwriter. So lots of you folks will remember Richard here in town, and he created, you know, he really boosted the design to the next level using the ASAI firm out of Lenexa, developing this striking multifunctional space that, yes, was home to an archive, but also heavily, heavily focused on, heavily privileged the interaction of, of folks coming in just to, to talk and build relationships and to hold events and, and to dialogue. And, and the space that we have today is completely stunning. We'll talk more about the architectural features, but it was always meant to be a public-facing vibrant, engaging place. And you made the comment, a lot of our listeners will know Richard Norton Smith. I might take that another direction. A lot of our listeners will know Richard Norton Smith, but I would bet you it would be even more prevalent how many of our listeners either don't know him or even if they recognize the name and link it to the Dole Institute, I think with the passage of time, people forget what an incredible coup it was to bring him here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, he was a person, as, as you referenced, of tremendous significance mm-hmm. in that realm. I mean, it mm-hmm. was... It brilliant was... researcher, brilliant writer, brilliant storyteller. He's been a frequent guest at the Institute. And since he left with our presidential lecture series, he's, he's captivating to listen to. Yeah. It, it's not a great analogy, but it's 
kind of like if you're a baseball team and you sign Babe Ruth as a free agent. I mean, it was a big darn deal mm-hmm. when he came here. That's true. That's true. And when he left the Dole Institute, it was to develop the, the Springfield Library, what would become the Lincoln Library. So again, another headlining project that he did exceptionally well yeah. with. Makes me already sparks the idea of a Lincoln Library podcast. We need to put that on our to-do list. <laughs> there you go. Your work is never done. <laughs> well, let's talk a little yeah. bit about, we've covered a lot of the past, but let's hit what most listeners are probably going to want to know most about, and that's what you all do today. And I want to cut that into three pieces if we can. I want to start with some of the actual programs, some of the educating and the interaction that you do and then let's talk a little bit about the facility itself some of the cool features of that and let's finish with the archives but let's start with the programs and you can take these in whatever order you want to but the k-12 outreach and just a tremendous amount of civic engagement student advisory board and the public service award you've got the youth civic leadership institute so much work with high school and middle schools, your tributes to veterans. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where, where do you start and what do you <laughs> yeah, pick? Yeah, thank you for that lead up. I'm not sure that I answered your question very completely, though, about the mission. I mean, I made the, the emphasis that we were and are completely, you know, public-facing, non, non-specialist-facing. And Senator Dole's primary concern at the dedication or, or with the concept of all this was that he didn't want this to be a monument to himself. He wanted this to be a place, okay, yes, you can be inspired by the career and the leadership of Senator Dole, but he wanted to, the Dole Institute to be a place where new generations of people came together to work together, to talk and, and be inspired into public service. So the mission that my predecessor, Bill Lacey, articulated was that the Dole Institute is dedicated to civil discourse, bipartisanship, and public service. And the programs that you described all work in service to that mission. And it's something that was incredibly, I think, prescient, you know, 20 or so years ago to... These are qualities that are good to have in a society, in a democratic society, but we have come to take those for granted. And when we have taken them for granted, that we've we've kind of seen there. I think you would agree with me. There's been kind of the erosion of those qualities in in recent years, in the last decade or more. So that makes our mission all the more powerful and all the more relevant today. The give me the three things again: public discourse, yeah, civil discourse, civil discourse. So we need to we we can disagree, but we talk to each other as human beings, and we don't behave as we do online <laughs> and maybe we might consider doing better online and treat each other a little better that we like we do in person Rev- revolutionary yeah thought. right <laughs> you are committed to to bipartisanship or the idea that either one of the political parties our main political parties or any political party does not have a monopoly on good ideas that it's only through discussion and finding common ground and some give and take in a discussion that you develop what better policy where we all benefit from that and and public service you know if, if folks don't invest themselves and their lives in our democratic institutions they're not going to work very well or we're not going to have them anymore and so we need to inspire great young minds to go into public service and we need to honor that service and and we're not so good at that in this society someday we don't treat our public servants very well well, I think every Sometimes. generation says this, but I'll still allow myself to say it anyway. It feels like that message is is more important and relevant today than it's been, if not ever, at least in a very mm-hmm. long time. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I appreciate you going back and, and getting a little more specific about that mission and vision from the beginning. And it is a good segue into the programming. Yeah. 
I know underpinning all of this programming is an effort to promote those things as well as just outright education. Right, right. civics education. Yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. talk to us about some of your the Dole Institute's yeah. efforts there and the impact that makes on the students and the communities. Mm-hmm. Well, probably what folks are most, you know, if you're not a part of the KU community, probably what we're most known for out in the community or across the state or the nation via our live stream is, is our, our Dole Forum programming, which is our public programming that brings in literally world leaders, national leaders, journalists, lawyers, Supreme Court justices, political practitioners of any kind of philosophy, and more. Uh, and you know, that is a really exciting place to be. Just this last fall, our guests included the former president of the Republic of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos. Who's we, a graduate of? Who's a KU grad as well. Rock chalk. Uh, <laughs> and he was the recipient of our Dole Leadership Prize. Our Elizabeth Dole Women in Leadership Lecture featured the president of the Sesame Workshop. That's Sesame Street International Foundation, uh, Sherry Rollins Weston. And uh, she was telling us about, you know, the global reach of Sesame Workshop and, you know, how to uh, build a better world <laughs> for our young people. Juana Summers, who's a, an outstanding journalist, actually is a University of Missouri grad, but she is a, now at All Things Considered <laughs> on NPR, outstanding young journalist. And and then to talk about our, our fellowship program, Scott, Jerry Seib, retired Washington editor of the Wall Street Journal and KU grad and Hayes native, Kansas through and through, Outstanding. was was our fellow last fall in, in 2022 and took us through the midterm elections in a wonderful series with him. Again, students and, and the general public are always invited. Our public our programs are always free. Jerry did a fantastic job. And this spring, our fellow was a gentleman by the name of Chendram Gashi, who was the Kosovar ambassador to France. So the Republic of Kosovo, is which is Europe's youngest democracy, 15 years old, and is a small country in the Balkans region. Senator Dole was a proponent of NATO intervention in the Balkans in the late 80s and early 90s and had a firm commitment to post-Cold War, the Balkan states establishing independent democracies. Yeah, and past is present. Kosovo's very much a hot spot in the news yet again today. Yeah, that's true. Extremely relevant. Well, I might offer this Audrey, it, it'll probably come in the form of a, sound like a testimonial, but so the Dole Forum, if I can use layman's terms, are more, you know, one-offs where you have guests in and the Dole Fellows is a little more of an ongoing presence and conversation. And I might analyze it this way. And if you think this is inaccurate, jump in and put me back on the rails. But the Dole Forum gets a lot of the holy cow names, like just you pick up the paper and you're like, holy cow, you know, Senator Trent Lott and, and Tom Daschle were here recently, we were talking about, and, you know, you said Supreme Court justices. I mean, you get names that, that really have some wow factor. You're like, holy cow, you know, that's, that is somebody worth going to see. And the Dole Fellows program gets folks that maybe you know their names if you're truly invested and you're kind of a a student of public policy in those kinds of areas. But if you are looking for, I mean, true analysis and a deep dive and, and thoughtful questions, you know, the Dole Fellows is more of an extended presence and it gives you that more deeply invested conversation. Is that 
I think that's a good, yeah, that's a good way to characterize it because the fellows, they host anywhere from five to seven sessions in a semester historically on, on a, you know, on a topic, a deep dive, as you say. Yeah. Uh, and so that's uh, somebody that you can see time and again. And so if somebody comes uh, that is invested in a topic that matters to you, holy cow, you know, that's a kind yeah. of a bonanza because you do get five, six, seven different bites at the apple through the programming. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're, so we're very busy. It's a real privilege to be able to convene both, again, the university community and the general public in our space. You know what I should have done right at the beginning, but I didn't, but I'll do now. Give us your website because folks might want to look up these these education opportunities to go attend one. Yeah, Dole Institute, one word, dot org. Dole Institute dot org. Very good. Yeah. Well, if, if there's anything else you want to cover on the programs, let's talk about it now. Or if not, before we move on to the actual institute itself and the structures, let's talk about the tribute to veterans, too, because that's a pretty cool yeah. part of what you all do. That's something our our senior associate director and, and Kansas legislator, Barbara Ballard, leads that initiative every year. I believe we've done that. It might be, I think this might be 18 years Maybe coming up on 20, but again, around Veterans Day every year, we have a fantastic public party honoring the greatest generation, but any any veterans since then. And we have a great dance and a, and a buffet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and our, you know, ROTC students from the KU community come and, and speak and, and talk about their service. And it's a really, really special night, really special event. Folks look forward to it every year. Yeah, it is. And the multi-generational aspect of it is both kind of humbling and also reassuring, you know, the right. legacy lives on all the way down from the greatest generation and Senator Dole yeah. all the way down to these young men and women today. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty yeah. cool deal. Yeah. Thanks for asking about that. So when, you know, when we're talking about other, other generations, younger generations, our student advisory board is a group of active KU students who volunteer and meet once a month and talk practice talking about political issues across the, 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 the political spectrum. They help run the fellowship program that we have a couple of dis- discussion group coordinators who assist our fellow and make sure that that programming gets done and is promoted. They do a lot of service in the community and they engage with our, our guests in the Dole Forum. So when those students who are really active at the Institute get the chance to interact more with, with these kinds of folks and it's yeah. a really big big opportunity for them. I'm thinking as we're, we're talking about big names and, and I'm remembering just this past spring, we when Jerry Seib came back to moderate a discussion with Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, who's a Republican, and, uh, and he appeared in tandem with Secretary of State of New Mexico, Mary Toulouse Oliver, who is a Democrat. And as Secretaries of State, they talked about the challenges that they faced in recent years and what we can all do to promote election integrity and uh, it was astonishing and to, and to be able to bring KU students into a room with those two people in advance of that program and have a, a really an intimate discussion with them is yeah. again something extraordinary. And I would note here anybody that might hear of the Dole Institute and think immediately of history you need nothing more than those last two guests to know how modern the topics are that you all cover today. That is that is about as new and relevant as it gets. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. So our student advisory board is, is a great place for KU students. You don't have to be a political science major. You don't have to be pre-law, you know, civic engagement. Political engagement is for anyone and everyone, as we know. We've got students who are in business, law, 
environmental studies, all sorts of things. And it's a really good interdisciplinary group. And increasingly, those students are, as you might imagine, very, very driven individuals. (laughs) (laughs) Who are getting a tremendous (laughs) opportunity, too. I can't imagine as a student here, if I had the opportunity to be involved in something like that, that would have been awesome. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe I did have the opportunity and I wasn't smart (laughs) enough to know I was going to say, that's a big part of, you know, the the push for the future is, you know, we are are attracting a core group of, of very dedicated students but we, we need to be doing more on a campus the size of KU. We need to be reaching more. So that'll be one of our challenges that we tackle in the next year and more. Our K through 12, I'll talk about our Youth Civic Leadership Institute. And this is also some, another initiative led again by our Senior Associate Director, Barbara Ballard. This is a camp, a leadership camp that happens every July for three days here, three or four days on KU's campus. And Barbara, they are High school age students who are, I believe, rising sophomores or juniors, seniors. There's a couple of different ages in in there with with YCLI. But they come together. Their schools nominate them from across the state of Kansas. And we have 40 or more students each summer, again, representative of, of communities across Kansas, really get a great mix. And those students stay in the dorm and they go to the Capitol. They, you know, are also engaged with with local legislative leaders in Lawrence and across the state and have a tremendous experience led by Barbara. And, you know, a lot of them come back. If they come to KU, they end up on our student advisory board. So (laughs) we have our own, we're growing our own, so to speak. So that is a wonderful signature program of ours. We've got great K through 12 outreach led by our public engagement coordinator, Julie Clover. This is something we'll talk about maybe COVID, but if we kind of talk about what COVID did, to, to our programming and how, how we met the challenge. Julie pivoted so quickly and made a whole host of engagement opportunities through the Girl Scouts of Northeast Kansas, Northwest Missouri during COVID when everything was shut down. And we grew our Girl Scout program, outreach program, exponentially during COVID. We were teaching not and engaging girls, not just in the region, but across the country because we were really at the forefront of Zoom engagement, Zoom-based engagement. So we have an excellent relationship with the Girl Scouts. We, again, this is all free to teachers across Kansas and beyond talking about democracy, civics, the legacy of Senator Dole, the policy legacy. We talk about disability. We talk about food security, any any manner of, of topics. We do a lot. I mean, thousands of kids a year. That is that awesome. Program. Yeah, I'm really, really proud of that. And and, sounds, and, like, sounds like you made the most of the covid yeah, yeah. Well. I mean, there are there are opportunities in crisis, as we all know, and we certainly did that. Our Easter egg roll, some folks who are local, Julie also is the leader of our, our annual Easter egg roll, our White House-inspired event. <laughs> Each Easter, and, and that's just grown, we took a year off during COVID, but it's the Saturday before Easter every year, and, you know, we get thousands of people easy coming to the Institute, get at the youngest kids. That's the space that we want to be, is a, a place where people of all ages yeah. want to come. Well, if you don't mind, I want to take a moment of personal privilege to tell you a fun story about one of your colleagues, and then we'll move on to the the Institute itself, structurally, and everything that's housed there. This has been a few years ago. We did a podcast with then-Speaker of the House, Ron Reichman, who is a Republican, and we were going through his story. And at some point, I asked him, I said, tell me about somebody. We are talking about bipartisanship, and I said, tell me... Who from the other side of the aisle, you know, do you 
work with or, or have you worked with that made a you know pretty profound impact on you and whose partnership you've appreciated and feel like you can have that good bipartisan conversation with and you want to take a, a wild stab at who he said <laughs> i'm gonna let you say it barbara <laughs> barbara ballard uh-huh. of course yeah <laughs> yeah she's she she walks the walk doesn't she yeah. Yes, she's, to she's the letter. A, she's amazing. She's we a treasure. so lucky to have her. Yeah, she's an ab- absolute treasure. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was pretty darn cool, of course, being a Lawrence resident. You know, we're proud of her. But when that was the answer the, the then Speaker of the House gave, I thought that was mm-hmm. pretty awesome. And to have her leading these programs that are teaching young people. I mean, to talk about, an, again, an example that, that walks the walk, that, that that is dedicated to doing the work. And that can articulate the value of doing that yeah. for folks who th- that really don't hear enough of that. Okay, well, let's talk about the facility itself. There's some pretty cool things there, just architecturally and structurally, and then some pretty cool stuff in that structure, obviously, as well. You've got the big stained glass American flag. That's a huge wow moment for folks that go there. The Veterans Memorial the Veterans Virtual Memory Wall. Talk to us about some of those things. Well, when you come in the Institute, I mean, it's really, if you've never visited, you just have to come. The summer would be a good time, and I'll tell you I'll tell you more. You, it's never too late, but the scale of the main hall, the Darby Gallery in Hanson Hall, is just breathtaking. We have the largest stained glass American flag in the world, and design fun fact is that in the original building design, Scott, that was just an open window. And Richard, the vision was like, something's got to go there. This has got to pop. This has got to be amazing. And and it is. It's just gorgeous. It also reflects into the the marble floor on the inside. So it's just got this beautiful reflecting pool phenomenon inside there. On either side of the stained glass American flag is our beams from World Trade Center Tower 1. Those were given to Senator Dole at the dedication but presented to him and former President Clinton for their work on the Families of Freedom Scholarship Fund in, in the wake of, of 9-11. The two of them together raised over $100 million wow. for children of victims of 9-11 so that they could go on to college. It's a symbol, and when we talk about bipartisanship, we talk about political rivalry, <laughs> talk about two men that are very different, mm-hmm. but they worked together even when Dole was in the Senate and we had and President Clinton was the President of the United States, and then their post-political career, they came together to do something for Americans and it's a memorial that is meaningful unto itself now now that you know the generation of of kids young kids certainly but but even at KU you know 9-11 was before they were born and so that is a big generation gap those of us who remember and those of us it could have been 500 years ago well I want you to if you would talk to us about the veterans virtual memory wall but before you do I have a horrible confession to make I had no idea that we had those beams from, yeah. from the towers of 9-11 yeah. as part of that. I did not know. Yeah. That's, that gives me goosebumps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, after the, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we, we hosted an exhibit from, it was an NEH-based exhibit about 9-11. I you know, again, this is, this is what happened. This is the story. And we had lots of people come through and bring their kids. And it's just like those that, that storytelling moment, that moment of connection, we have to tell people what that was like and what it was like to be an American after yeah. that and how how we came together mm-hmm. as a country. So, yeah, it's a place to, that really invites reflection as well. 
the the veterans tributes that we have when you when you come into the institute you know the the ceiling is soaring we've got a an array of over a thousand photographs of men and women who were Kansans and World War II veterans on the wall and that those were collected in advance of our dedication in 2003 since that time there was immediately there was a database that folks have been submitting for 20 years we have a database that's over, you know, four or five thousand submissions of, of men and women who are World War II veterans. Again, another product of the COVID era, we reinvented our, our memory wall and, and made it an interactive, redeveloped some software and have this wonderful Kansas Veterans virtual memory wall. So we're not just honoring World War II veterans, we're honoring World War II to today. Again, an inter- intergenerational tribute to military service, public service. Yeah. That's something you can see online and you can submit online for free or for a small donation. And when you come into the halls of the Institute, it's there. The photographs are are reproduced on a large scale in a beautiful space. And I tell you what, when visitors come and, you know, look, look up their loved one, their friend, their relative, and see that photo on that feature, it, it gets you every time. I bet. That has got to be incredibly mm-hmm. emotional. Mm-hmm. When that happens. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I know how that feels. My grandfather is on the World War II memory wall. My aunt submitted him over 20 years ago. Wow. He was a World War II vet. And so, you know, it's a way. He was Army infantry. And, you know, doing what I do is a way to honor yeah. what he did. That is very cool. Yeah. Well, again, you know, never waste a crisis. But the fact that you all made that virtual through the COVID time is pretty amazing mm-hmm. because, you know, not everybody can get to the facility itself. And the online presentation of it is is still pretty darn cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let's shift gears a little bit in terms of the structure. And I'm saving the best for last for hardcore policy geeks like you and I. The archives may be the coolest part of all. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about your featured exhibits, your tours and activities. You know, mm-hmm. there's a... There are things that are fixed that you can go to the Dole Institute and always see. Mm -hmm. And then there are things that will shift over time as you emphasize things. Talk to us a little bit about those evolving exhibits and what goes into that and how the decisions are made and how often they change. Yeah. So the the main hall, Hanson Hall, features an exhibit, a permanent exhibit dedicated to the life and legacy of Senator Bob Dole. And that's been in place since our dedication. And it tells a fantastic story. I mean, so I'm a museum person. We all understand these spaces need, I'm I'm prepping the audience here, these spaces (laughs) need love and attention and renovation and, and new looks, but it's hard every time. Because there are folks who come into our building and, and they, they look at the exhibit that's 20 years old for the first time and they say they learn so much. They learn so much about him. They learn their minds are expanded about how the lines of between people of opposite political parties have <laughs> totally been drawn in ways that they didn't used to be. You know, what we're experiencing today is not how it's always been. Yeah. And that message becomes clear when you go through that exhibit. So that's uh, a really, it's permanent. It's worth a look. I read something, you know, I stop by and I read it once a week and I always rediscover something new. You can't see it enough, experience it enough. Our temporary exhibits, we have a relatively new a renovated space that used to be exclusively the research room, but is now the Elizabeth Dole Gallery and Reading Room, a multi-purpose space that facilitates archival research, which we'll talk more about in a bit, but also is a, is a smaller exhibit space that we can bring out the treasures from the archives and, and tell different stories. 
we have, over the years, we've hosted exhibits about Senator Elizabeth Dole using her own papers, which are also at the Dole Institute. Really fantastic project program that we launched in 2017. It was an exhibit called The League of Wives, and it was a, a project showcasing the leadership of POW and MIA wives during the Vietnam era and their advocacy for themselves and each other. Lots of folks, we talk about history of conflict, and of course, we're talking about what's happening on the ground and what the, the fighting men and women are doing. But there's a whole other component to military service, and that's the spouses and families back home. Vietnam was hard for everyone, but for these women who whose husbands were POWs and they got little support, no information. In some cases, you know, they weren't getting paid because their husband wasn't working, but he also wasn't dead. There were a lot of serious issues in addition to the emotional turmoil of that situation. So folks like Sybil Stockdale, who was the wife of Admiral James Stockdale, was the leader of the National League. They engaged with Senator Dole in the late 60s. They found an ally in him, and he really helped them connect with the Nixon administration. And they influenced policy worldwide to bring their veterans home and also to do outreach about the missing in action movement. So these are, I mean, I'm going into quite a bit of detail on that, but the stories in the archives, I mean, some people are, you, you love history and you know you do. Some people say, oh, history, and you know, dusty papers, and I'm not interested or whatever. These are people's lives in these materials. The story that I told could be told in hundreds of different ways through those papers with different people who engaged with Senator Dole or Elizabeth Dole over the years. It's rich, rich American history. And history does not have to be your passion to be impacted by stories like those. Yeah. Not yeah, at all. Yeah. The one thing I would say about the the rotating exhibits and such, again, from a layman's perspective, would just be that folks, I think, most folks intuitively know, you know, if you go out to D.C. and you go to the Smithsonian or whatever, that those exhibits turn over all the time. And so even if you were there a year ago, there's absolutely reason to get back out and see it again because it's not going to be the same experience. And I would just share with listeners that the same is true at the Dole Institute. You know, there, there are pieces, the bedrocks, that will always be there, but there is so much of it. Even if you've been to the Dole Institute before, if you haven't been there recently, you haven't really been. That's right. You know, because it changes all the time, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and the stories are, this is just another editorial note, but as a as a citizen of the community that, you know, follows what you do and gets to read about it, it, it is incredibly personal, the stories that you tell. You do not have to be a history lover to be deeply impacted by by what gets told out there and what gets shared. Well, let's segue. The last two things I want to close with, I want to end by talking a little bit about the Doles themselves and let you tell a piece of their story. But first, for our fellow geeks out there, <laughs> let's talk about the archives. I like geeks. Yeah, I do are... too. Yeah, the geeks archives. Geeks are cool. Does Ar that make sense? <laughs> Ar archives are the, are the most amazing part of the whole thing, in my opinion, because you literally could spend five lifetimes and not get through. Oh my gosh, you're so right. And and I know this is your background and your passion too, so I'm not even going to set you up necessarily with, you know, some of the things out there. Just talk to me about the the material there and the people that come to to you know, research and take part. I just think it's awesome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And and as we we started, you know, the archives, the gift of the archives, the gift of the papers was the 
initial transaction that set the founding of the Dole Institute in place. And it sets our, our institute apart. There are political institutes across the country. There are congressional archives across the country. There really isn't, except for those that are modeled after us, you know, congressional an institute of politics, a congressional study center like ours that combines the museum, the archive, and the level of programming that we have. So the papers, the small version, our way to think about the papers is that they're materials that document the life and career of Senator Bob Dole, Senator Elizabeth Dole. Okay, well, it's easy to say either I'm interested in that or I'm not interested in that, or I like that guy or, and I like her or not. But we're talking about, you know, a career in Congress that spans four decades, a career in politics here in Kansas. Bob Dole actually served a term in the Kansas legislature when he was a law student at Washburn. He was Russell County attorney for eight years before he ran for the House of Representatives in 1960 and was elected. He never lost an election. You know, was reelected to Congress four times and elected to the Senate again and again until he resigned in 1996. He was involved really from the beginning because he was, I'm going to say, aggressive, assertive, ambitious young legislator in the shaping of every piece of major legislation of the latter half of the 20th century. So we're talking the American century. We're talking about signature pieces of legislation, whether it's in the, in the 60s and working on a bipartisan basis, voting for the Civil Rights Act, voting for the Voting Rights Act, but also working with George McGovern on food insecurity issues in the 1960s, doing international trips to India, talking about how can we, how can we sell commodities to India? How can we stabilize Southeast Asia? How can we also benefit the Kansas farmer doing all of these things and then getting into the Senate, his maiden speech on the floor of the Senate dedicated. I mean, this is, this is a signature. This is an identity piece for, for senators. The signature policy initiative is opportunities for people with disabilities on the floor of the Senate in 1969, working for over two decades with people from all parties, grassroots advocates, folks across the country and internationally to develop the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990, which was finally passed. I mean, that's another part of what we talk about when we're talking to young people is that like your, your victories are not gonna come easy. They're not gonna be tomorrow. They're not gonna be next week, next month or next year. Show up, do the work, work with people who think differently than you. And before you know it, something will have, something wonderful will have happened. It's these fantastic interactions on a daily basis that somebody of his, in his position has, whether it's with staff, with constituents, with other members of Congress, with world leaders, and, and this great accumulation of those that just, it's just, it's astonishing. <laughs> and all of those, the archives contain, I mean, everything going back through his Senate career, does it even go back further into his time in the Kansas legislature? And We have a uh, few pieces of material from the legislature. Now, you have to keep in mind, too, that, you know, when somebody becomes, actually, I should start even further back. We've got letters home to his, you know, letters, family letters oh, between wow. his parents and his family. And he, when he was a student at KU, yeah. and then when he was, you know, serving in World War II and was away at training or, or eventually serving in Europe. Just a detailed question, mm-hmm. but I assume, you know, you can't physically get those out and touch them unless you're part of the inside 
you these are open to the public. So yes, you will be supervised when you're uh-huh. using these materials, but you don't have to have any particular credentials. Wow. We have we have resources online that can kind of help steer you to what you might be interested in. And we have great archivists, our senior archivist, Sarah Gard, and her team, you know, you could say I'm interested in this area or I'm interested in seeing World War II letters or, you know, a different a different policy area. We do a lot of instruction on main campus too for different, you know, classes about policy areas, Medicare, Medicaid, and engaging with these materials and what was the policy discussion during it's, those it's times. It's just overwhelming to me to think about the fact that you could go in there as a, a layperson you know, not a, a presidential historian right. or a congressional archivist, but just a, a regular person. Yeah. And actually have access to a letter from 80 years ago that he might have written to or received from his parents. That is, mm-hmm. that is mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. It's it's mind-blowing. And the letters, you know, from that period when he's a student and, and a soldier, those are fun to engage KU students with and younger. Because it's like, here's, here's a, a boy, Bobby Joe, who is just like you. You know, we all start from somewhere and, you know, he was strong and ambitious and intelligent, had all of those gifts and was extremely driven, but we're all writing home asking mom for cookies. (laughs) 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 And to go back to where, you know, we were, you're asking about stuff from the legislature. So when you're serving one term in the Kansas legislature, you don't, you don't know that you're going to be Bob Dole. Right. Four decades down the road. Right. So you don't keep a lot of stuff. Yeah. So there's less stuff from the early years. And the proportion of materials from the House and the Senate years are, are certainly reflect that, too. There's less materials from the House. Of course, he had a smaller staff. You know, he had multiple offices in the Senate for his Senate office and his leadership office and the number of outreach offices that he had around the state. So it's, as an archive, it's considered to be newer because it's more recent. We have a wonderful research program that digitizes materials, sometimes on request if there's not too much stuff that folks are interested in. A lot of times folks will come to the archive and, and stay. Research fellows, travel grant recipients will come and, and use the materials That's be on my site. Next question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, they're not just interested in Bob Dole or Senate history, they're doing research on a policy issue. A lot of it is, you know, talking about American political development. How did Folks from opposing parties worked together. What was some of the messaging? What was some of the rhetoric? What were they saying in public versus the kind of letters and, and conversations they were having in private? It's kind of what we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the true story, the real story kind of stuff. So it's just fascinating. One project that I should mention, because it's really exciting, is called the American, Con- oh gosh. American Congress Digital Archives Project. And this is a project that's being led out of the University of West Virginia. We are one of three original partners on that project that has received funding from from the NEH. And this is a foundational project to develop an online tool that will bring congressional archives like ours together with other congressional archives out there. I mean, there are members of Congress and other archives out there into a single portal online because... As it is now, Congress is the least studied branch of the American government. You can go to a presidential library, you get the presidential papers. You go to, you want to study congressional history, you have to go to 15 different places, 50 different places to get at all those papers, if they even exist. The papers that are in archives that are not housed at the National Archives in the, in the National Records Administration are considered personal papers, personal property by the member. They can get rid of them if they want. So they may not even exist. So which makes Senator Hem- or Chancellor Hemingway's advocacy even more important, you know, decades ago that 
that you know this material is needs to be in Kansas. It needs to be kept. You know, and it's material that is dispersed. It's difficult to do this research because you have to travel all around. So this portal will bring these materials together, help us virtually recreate the relationships that were taking place on the ground by by marrying all of these things up together. And, and our that, goal is to have a better understanding of how Congress was really work, doing their work. Yeah, that's got to be, it's a great segue into my, I want to ask you one more question about the archives before we move on and, and maybe close it out by talking a little bit about the doles themselves. But my last question for you on the archives, it's a good segue, this work you're doing, coordinating with the other libraries or the other institutes because... I've been thinking the whole time the person or the group of people that will probably get the most frequent benefit out of that are the true historians, you know, the scholars that this is their, their livelihood is this kind of research. And I was going to ask you this, undoubtedly there have been very accomplished authors that have accessed materials at the Dole Institute as part of their research and their books, you know, books that a lot of our listeners may have read when somebody of that caliber comes to or uses the Dole Institute, do you even know what happens? I mean, do they check in with you if you get a, a, a congressional historian that's writing a book about, maybe it's about the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, something like that, and they're coming to do a substantive part of their research in your archives. It is open to the public. Do you even know that happens? Well, in the past, when I was overseeing the archive, I definitely would have known as a director. I will know just in as interstaff communication, but but it is something that you know, if anybody knows the 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 culture of libraries and and open access and, and privacy, that that's not something that would necessarily be known. Yeah. But your comment allows me to bring up a good point: is that, and I mentioned the archive is relatively new. We're ripe for some really high-level research to, to be happening with our materials. We have lots of scholars, really great scholars, that are published with the university presses that come and do research in our archive. But as for household names, not too many. We're kind of waiting for them to, to come and, and to you know tell this extraordinary story. Yeah, um, or if they have come, they didn't announce themselves. Well. Yeah, but it is, I don't know what I think is cooler. I guess maybe we'll close with this thought and we'll... We'll move on to the doles to conclude the podcast, but I don't know what I think is cooler, either that you might cross paths with some of these folks as they do research, you know, in your archives, or the fact that they may have stopped by and we would never even know it in the first place. <laughs> either way, I think that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's, I have probably used up all the clock we we'd reserved with you already, but if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about the doles themselves Sure. to take us home. You had the, the, the good fortune to be able to, to work and to know Senator Dole and you've worked with Senator Elizabeth Dole as well. Yeah. Tell us what you think listeners would want and need to know about their story you know, we've talked already, you've touched on his military service, and really, intermittently, we've touched on a lot of his service throughout the podcast mm -hmm. as we've talked about other things, but tell us anything that you think listeners ought to know about them and how, who they are, have impacted what the Dole Institute has become, and I would really like to give you a chance to make a free plug to close things out. You guys are coming up on 
both what would have been Senator Dole's 100th birthday, and it coincides with the 20-year anniversary of the launch of the Institute. So let me give you the, the floor, basically, for the balance of the podcast, and tell us what you think is, is relevant that listeners may not know about them and their story, mm-hmm. and, and close with a pitch about what's coming up. Well, as you say, we've talked a little bit in bits and pieces about Senator Bob Dole's biography, but I don't think what I've said specifically, and this is part of the stories that get lost to generations, is reminding folks that he was gravely wounded on the battlefield in World War II in the hills of Italy. He wasn't expected to survive. Initially, he was paralyzed from the neck down, and he endured over three years of of rehabilitation in Topeka Winter General and and military hospitals elsewhere and recuperated in, in Arizona for a time. This transformation, this experience of his going from the triathlete, you know, he was a quarter miler, he played football and basketball at KU. He was recruited by Fog Allen to play for the KU Jayhawks. To go from somebody who is really a, a hero of your community and Russell, somebody who people were watching and expecting great things from, and to be in the attitude of the time a broken person. There is an extraordinary essay that he wrote, and sometime in the 50s, it's not dated, that is actually on display right now at the Institute for the first time. It's a two-page essay. It talks about how I overcame my physical handicap. And he talks about the experience of going from being this fit, able-bodied, intelligent, you know, wanting to become a surgeon to someone who had a permanent disability, his right arm, hand and arm, would never recover mobility. And what it felt like to be a man in uniform with a disability, garnering recognition, respect, you know, and, and, and support from your community, going into, and then being someone in plain clothes as a person with a disability, and how people treat you when they think you're one thing and not the other, and really internalizing, understanding the experience of someone with a visible disability, and to a certain extent, invisible disability, having society not expect anything of you anymore, and what that feels like, and overcoming I guess not not bending to low societal expectations, but saying, you know, I'm still me. I still have abilities. I am going to beat this thing. And who, you know, who cares? This thing doesn't define me anymore. Knowing that that was his own experience and knowing that there were millions of Americans who felt the same way. Maybe they acquired a disability in war. Maybe they were born with a disability. Maybe they aged and you know had an injury or acquired a disability later in life to read the papers and understanding we we will all be disabled as at one time in our lives whether we're ill or whether we're old that is a universal experience and we need to have empathy for each other and do whatever we can in government to make sure that people with disabilities feel welcome and have the ability if they choose to participate in society you know that's his experience around being a person with a disability, but that also helped him, you know, transcend barriers talking, you know, with, he promoted with race and gender. He was very supportive of, of women in leadership in ways that were ahead of his time, I would argue. Also, again, as a Republican voting with Democrats in the 1960s, recognizing that people are equals and they deserve equal, equal protection under the law, equal opportunities. I don't think we can talk about that enough these days. And that formative experience of, of him having, going through that as a young man 
and formed the rest of his life and his leadership. For Senator Elizabeth, she was one of, if I'm going to get this number, one of 25 women in a class of 550 men at Harvard Law School. And we talk about these days, you know, being in spaces where you're not expected to be or not feeling welcome. This was a hostile environment. The, on the first, she will tell the story. and It's well known if you have heard her speak. But on her first day of law school, a, a classmate of hers, a male, came up to her and said, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself you know, for being here. <laughs> Number one, what a thing to, to say right. to anyone for any reason. And she said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean. He said, this spot could have been taken by a man who would actually use his law degree, making the assumption that she was there to, to meet a husband. Unbelievable. You know, day, day one, day yeah. one. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Holy uh, And, you know, she went on, of course, to have an out, outstanding career on her own. She was a Federal Trade Commissioner under the Nixon administration. She actually started out as an intern in consumer affairs under Lyndon Johnson went on to work in the FTC for President Nixon. She campaigned with Bob Dole in 88, you know, in 80, 88, and, and 1996, 1976, I should say. You know, that's what the joke was, that their honeymoon was the 1976 presidential <laughs> campaign when Bob Dole was running with Gerald Ford for, for vice president. But that's, an, that's another great story that folks need to know, is that, you know, she is a professional woman, adept in politics in 1976 she said hey i'm just sitting around here guys maybe i could go out on on behalf of the ticket and they said well you know that's not something that we you don't need to do that it's not something we expect of you she said you know just you watch right and she went out there and you know doubled the coverage of the dole portion of that ticket she spoke in louisiana and ended up on the top of the fold of the newspaper the very next day talk about you know nobody nobody's asking her to do that nobody's encouraging her she's just i'm doing this yeah and i'm going to show you <laughs> if i can interject just one note there as well it is it is a not frequently you know discussed piece of history or whatever but the four dole ticket if you go back and look now granted they ended up losing the election but the margin and where they were polling was a abysmal and the turning point that really brought them back into competition was two things it was elizabeth dole and it was betty ford going out and taking more prominent roles that's when the poll numbers started to recover and in both cases the same was true with betty ford you know it was just dismissed how cute you know you want to go out and speak and then she just went out and killed it mm -hmm. and america you know just embraced her and loved her and it was, yeah, and it's a it's a long-forgotten fact, but they were two of the absolute pioneers in terms of the spouses playing substantive roles in, in those elections. It was a transformational deal. Yeah, yeah, a very, very important time in history. Sometimes you don't recognize it until you've gone through it. Well said. But to continue with Senator Elizabeth's career, and I'll be brief about this, but a two-time two presidential cabinet member. Department of Transportation, Secretary of the Department of Transportation under President Reagan, Secretary of the Department of Labor under George H.W. Bush, went on to become the president of the American Red Cross, only the second woman in history since Clara Barton founded the organization. Wow. <laughs> and then went on to Pre be... <laughs> pretty good company. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and again, you know, uh, 150 years later, I hadn't had a, had a woman a woman leader. I, I'm glossing over her accomplishments in those offices, the trifecta when she was a Department of Transportation secretary, and making sh- sure that folks were wearing seatbelts nationally, that we're raising the drinking age to 21. When she was president of the American Red Cross, was at the height of the AIDS crisis, and the the blood supply, the nation's blood supply, needed to be secured, and also we needed. More blood. Yeah. I remember her leading the Red Cross, but you just made the comment. It's funny what impactful moments in history you don't see them for what they are in the moment, only in hindsight. It, yeah, if I ever knew, I'd long forgotten that she landed that at one of the most challenging times they would have ever had. Mm hmm. Wow. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mercy. And, and a mastermind of, of process and policy streamlined. The American Red Cross's, you know, collecting system in a time when it was just under extreme duress. Yeah. Went on to be elected a senator from North Carolina, first woman senator from North Carolina. And then she's she's still busy today. She has her own foundation, the Elizabeth Dole Foundation for Military Caregivers. It's an organization that's 10 years old, and she is an outreach powerhouse, has, has implemented programs all over the world and is working all over the country, excuse me, with the VA to create policies that better support the spouses of veterans because it's in everybody's best interest as folks who are caring for wounded warriors and also having their own, as we talked about the POW and the MIA wives, having their own challenges in their own lives. And we're not just talking about women. We're talking about spouses. We're talking about children and and parents of wounded warriors. She's an incredible woman. Well, let me close with this the we've already used up more than an hour of your time and appreciate you being so so gracious with sharing these stories but why don't we close with this a little bit of a free uh, announcement on for the Dole Institute but also I think of ought to be of interest to our listeners out there as well what's coming up specifically with commemorating what would have been Senator Dole's 100th birthday which, of course, coincides with the 20th anniversary of the Institute. I know you folks have some exciting things planned to mark those moments. Tell, Let's close with a, a free sales pitch, tell, <laughs> but, but it's more than that. It ought to be of intense interest to a lot of yeah. folks. Tell us what's coming up. Yeah, well, thank you, Scott, and thanks again to BHL for, for, for having me as your guest today. So actually, our celebrations are well underway. Senator Trent Lott and Tom Daschle helped us do a groundbreaking of this amazing tribute earthwork by Kansas artist Dan Hurd that depicts Senator Bob Dole. And it is underway, work is underway right now on the grounds of the Institute. If you're a fan of Stan or a fan of Bob Dole or just want another reason to get out and around and come to the Institute this summer, you have got to come and watch this thing and process. It's really fascinating. We have put out a call across the state for our K through 12 students to create artworks and mail them to us to be a part of the finished piece. We've got hundreds of them already, and we expect at least as many more. And that will be, those materials will be laid into the piece before it's dedicated on July 22nd, when we have a wonderful public celebration at the Institute. Senator Elizabeth will be with us. Senator Bob Dole's daughter, Robin, will be with us. We will pay some tributes to Senator Dole, dedicate the earthwork, just have a a public celebration. Richard Norton Smith will join us for a live virtual interview. My predecessor, Bill Lacey, will interview Richard, who will be in Grand Rapids, but that'll be a live conversation and folks will be have an opportunity to, to engage with questions for Richard. Also featuring Carrie Timchuk, who is a former speechwriter 
for Senators Bob and Elizabeth Dole. We'll talk about the wit and wisdom of Senator Bob Dole as well. We'll have kids' activities. We're expecting a food truck or two, maybe one that's selling Dole Whip in honor of Bob Dole. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We found these folks in Topeka. I saw them on Facebook. I was like, I think we got to get these people. That's so outstanding. We'll confirm that and put it on our website, but it's, it's got to happen. I'm convinced. That is awesome. Uh, get a bouncy house. I have some music. We'll have military music from the unit that actually played it at the dedication, the, the locally based Army Reserve Band. Very uh, we'll, cool. We'll play some music. And Ryan Manuel, who's a local singer-songwriter, so lots of reasons to visit the Dole Institute for everything that we are and have been, as we've been talking about. But for this special exhibit, that essay that I mentioned, you'll, it's, it's typed on onion skin paper. You can just really put yourself in the moment in that headspace. It's on display. See the earthwork. Come celebrate with us. And the earthwork will be, on, be maintained. You know, you can come after. We'll be maintaining that through, through the end of October. So it's definitely, you know, get it while you can. Come see it while you can. And well, we look forward to seeing you for many reasons. Well, that is awesome. And I might close with this, just a free personal testimonial. It is, it is such a treasure, not only for the community, but for the state, and I would argue even for the country. So to listeners, if you haven't come check it out, I hope you will. And I would say again, even if you have been there, but it's been three years, five years, 10 years, come again. You're not going to have the same experience and there's always new and cool stuff going on there. And especially so with these anniversaries coming up, worth the trip. And if all else fails online, you know, you can go and have a lot of the experience just with the materials that are available there. Well, Audrey Coleman, it has been our pleasure to have you as a guest on the BHL podcast. We are passionate about institutions like the Dole Institute that tell critical stories from our history and use those as teaching tools. We love partnering with groups like yours to try and share that with a broader audience, and we think what you do matters. So thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. All right. BHL listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you on the next edition of the BHL Podcast. 